Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. Thanks to our ability to tune in online, I've been able to keep up with some of the exciting things that have been happening here in our church family over those last two weeks. If you were here two weeks ago on Memorial Day weekend, you know that we were honored and blessed and fortunate to have Vocal Union here as they helped our very own Mateo Coronado lead us in worship and service and sermon in song. And how incredible was that moment? I mean, just watching it online, I was blown away by some of the ability and the thoughtfulness that went into that service. And then last week, my friend Andy Johnson preached about God's loving heart for every race of humanity, every nationality, every language. And on the anniversary of Pentecost Sunday, this day almost 2,000 years ago, when God showed up in power and empowered the church for its mission, Andy explained how God's action that day gave even our church power and mission and motivation and direction to be a part of God's plan to bless the nations. In fact, I was excited that while I was gone, Andy got the opportunity to explain to some of you for the first time about how for the past 14 months, a small group of Heritage members has been meeting together and we've been asking God for direction. We've been asking God for guidance about how our church might participate and re-engage in global mission. We've been asking God, what do you have for us? What is our church uniquely equipped and inspired and prepared to do that would be a blessing to all of the races and the nations and the languages of the world? And during that time of discernment, something really exciting happened. We became aware of a global movement of God that maybe you haven't heard about before. We became aware that there is a profound movement of God happening right now in the region around the Mediterranean Sea where thousands upon thousands of Muslim background people are migrating into countries that are now more accessible to Christian missionaries. And as a discernment team, we have felt compelled, we felt inspired that God has given us a dream to be a part of the effort to reach some of those people who have not known Jesus yet. And if that sounds intriguing to you, If that sounds inspiring to you, if you'd like to hear more about what the Spirit is doing in our hearts and in our community toward that end, I want to invite you to mark on your calendar a luncheon, and it's a bring-your-own-lunch kind of thing that's happening two weeks from today, just down this hall at 1215 in the studio on June 26th, because together we're going to continue this effort, continue this drive to try to figure out the best ways for our church to join in what God is up to. Of course, 
I probably don't have to tell you, sometimes it's a challenge figuring out what God is up to, isn't it? Sometimes, sometimes figuring out what God is doing in my life, in my city, in my nation, in my society, in our world, sometimes figuring out what God is up to is not an easy task. Do you, have you ever read that famous poem, Footprints in the Sand? I, I remember my grandmother had a decorative copy of this hanging on a little plaque in her house all during my growing up years, and I've seen it in countless other venues, and so I just kind of assume most everybody's come across this poem at some point. Maybe you've seen it too. But this poem tells the story of a person who had a dream that they were walking along a beach hand in hand with God. And as they looked back at the footprints behind them, the footprints that they had left and the footprints that God had left, they could visualize simultaneously a timeline of their life, some of the things that they and God had walked through. But there was a troubling realization when this dreamer realized that at some of the most difficult moments, at some of the toughest moments of their life, it looked like there was just one footprint in the sand back then. And the poem says that this dreamer asked God about it and says, Lord, why, why in the world? Why, why would you have abandoned me at the moments when it seemed like I needed you the most? And if you've read the poem, you, you know God explains that what really happened was that during those times of trial and suffering, God says, when you only see one set of footprints, it's because I was carrying you during those moments. Now, we, you know, it's a sweet thought, and it's a poignant writing, but the reason... The reason that this poem strikes us the way it does and the reason that this poem seems so profound is because this dreamer reacted the same way that most of us would have. This dreamer misinterpreted God's involvement in the story. The dreamer assumed that during the most trying moments of their life, during those pivotal moments when it felt like their faith and their existence were at their breaking points, the dreamer assumed that in those moments they were facing those all alone. It seemed obvious to this dreamer what God was up to, that God was gone, that God had walked away, that God had abandoned them, and actually the dreamer got it all wrong. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life when you thought, okay, I can tell what God is up to? I can see how God is moving. I can see how God is involved. I can see how God is demonstrating care and showing power and being invested in my life. Have you ever had one of those moments where you sensed God's peace in your heart so clearly that you were simply amazed at it? I mean, there are moments, and I hope it's happened to you, there are moments when God's presence can seem unmistakable, undeniable. Maybe for you it's happened at moments when you were witnessing a beautiful, powerful scene in creation. When you were standing at the water's edge or watching the migration of the butterflies. Maybe something so profound that it just took your breath away. 
Two weeks ago, my family was on a, this vacation that we've dreamed of for such a long time. We were on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, and we saw incredible, amazing sights the whole time we were there. We saw so many animals that we'd never seen in the wild before, but one afternoon we were sitting at the water's edge and we're watching sea lions play in the bay, and I caught this picture of my wife and kids. And in that moment, in that moment, the power of God and the peace of God to me was palpable. It felt obvious to me that only God could have created such a beautiful spot and such a perfect scene. And I wonder if you've had moments like that. I wonder if you've had some moments like that when you felt overwhelmed with amazement and when, and when you were just so inspired because of something you saw that God had done. If you've got children or grandchildren, maybe you can remember the miracle of their birth, the inspiration of their arrival, and the love that you felt for them instantly. Those are one of the, that's one of those moments when people from almost every spectrum will say, my heart was just touched. And it was a moment that was awe-inspiring. Perhaps for you, some of the moments when you have felt God's power, when you have experienced God's provision and peace have happened, when you've been on the receiving end of a generous gift that showed up at just the right time. Maybe you've had moments in your life when a big prayer was answered and you felt so just profoundly grateful. Those are the kinds of moments that can take tiny faith and make it grow, right? Those are the kinds of moments that can take your hope and turn it into a confidence. Because if you have any faith at all, if you have mustard seed-sized faith, and then something just out of the blue, incredibly inspiring happens to you, it can seem to point to the power and the goodness and the presence of God. And sometimes this is how God communicates. Turn to any book in the Bible, and you'll find stories of people who had compelling, undeniable, unmistakable encounters with God that made God's presence and power in their life obvious. I mean, think about it. Moses is walking around there shepherding these sheep, and he comes across this burning bush that's not being consumed by the fire. And it's this moment in his life that he would tell his children and grandchildren about because he could never forget. There was the moment when Mary, this young servant girl in Israel, is actually visited by an angel, and she has this conversation that says, God is so pleased with you, and God's going to use you, and God's going to work through your life, and God is going to change the world through you. And it was this moment of unmistakable, undeniable connection and faith building for Mary. And then you think about a moment like when Saul of Tarsus is walking down the road to Damascus and suddenly he's blinded by this bright light and Jesus speaks to him. And in a moment like that, God's presence and power, they're obvious. These are the kind of encounters that remove doubts. These are the kind of encounters that inspire spiritual courage. But for most of us, for most of us, as far as I can tell, our experience of faith has not been filled with moments like that. 
for most of us, as far as I can tell, our experience with faith has not been just one after the other, obvious, beyond a shadow of a doubt kind of moments of God's presence, power, and peace. Every burning bush I've ever seen was reduced to ash pretty quickly. But this morning, I want to tell you, I don't think that means God's not communicating with us. I don't think the fact that our faith experience has had more mystery to it means that God is not present, powerful, and providing peace. In fact, most of the time, most of the time in our faith experience, the problem is that we don't know exactly what to listen for. Most of the time in our faith experience, we don't know how to notice what God is trying to say. And so this morning, I want to focus your attention by telling you a story. And it's a story that's recorded in the New Testament portion of your Bible in the final chapter of the book of Luke, chapter 24. It's a story that begins with hopelessness and confusion and moves from there toward clarity and faith. And you got to look for this. Luke is in the third book of the New Testament, and Luke is, in an, is an account of the earthly life of Jesus. And so by the time we get to the last chapter, by the time we get to chapter 24 of Luke's retelling, we've already reached the climax of the story. In the preceding chapter, chapter 23, Jesus has been crucified, killed, buried in a brand new tomb outside of Jerusalem, and his followers are so disoriented they don't know which way to go. His followers are at a loss because they had no understanding that the story wasn't yet over. They thought it was done. As far as they could tell, as far as the followers of Jesus could tell, the Jesus movement had just been publicly squashed by the mighty Romans and their, allies, their allied relationship with the powerful Jewish leaders. And everything that these disciples had believed about Jesus suddenly seemed pointless. And so there they were, confused, lost, angry, disappointed, sad, they're questioning themselves. They're questioning God. They're questioning everything. Like that dreamer in the Footprints poem, Jesus' disciples felt totally abandoned and alone. I mean, they had trusted Jesus. They had been confident in Jesus. They had followed Jesus. They put their hope in Jesus. And then they watched in less than a 24-hour period as Jesus was arrested, tried, and sent to death without even putting up a fight. And so in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, two of these disciples of Jesus who are so disoriented were traveling on foot returning home from their pilgrimage to Jerusalem after the Passover feast and the shocking events that had happened to Jesus in the city that weekend. And this story in Luke 24, this story happens on the very first Easter Sunday. It happens on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, but Jesus' disciples didn't understand any of that yet. 
And so Luke tells us that while the majority of the disciples were still in Jerusalem trying to make sense of the empty tomb that they had just discovered that seemed so confusing to them, a few miles away on that same day, two disciples were traveling to a village called Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They're walking. And they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. And while they were discussing these things, Jesus himself arrived and joined them on their journey. But don't miss verse 16. It says they were prevented from recognizing him. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And so they continued with the same tenor, with the same disposition, with the same discouragement that they had already been feeling. Verse 17 says, Jesus said to them, what are you talking about as you walk along? And they stopped and it said their faces were downcast. Picture this scene. They're walking this seven mile trip making this journey, probably carrying a lot of stuff with them, or maybe they've got some kind of a cart or an animal that's helping. But suddenly, as Jesus asks this question, what have you been talking about as you walk along? Everything stops. And they turn and look to him, like, how can you not know? Verse 18 says, the one named Cleopas replied, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who's unaware of the things that have taken place over the last few days? Where have you been? What do you mean, what are we talking about? What's everybody talking about? This is what is on everybody's mind right now. This was a crazy eventful weekend. And Jesus said to them, what things? What things that have taken place over the last few days? And here's their answer. They said to Jesus, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Because of his powerful deeds and his words. And they're talking about all of the things that they had witnessed. They're talking about the moments when they had seen the healings. They're talking about the moments when they had seen the multiplication of food. They're talking about the moments when they had witnessed Jesus' power over nature and creation, natural disasters. They're talking about everything that they had witnessed Jesus doing. And they said because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. And they're telling the truth. Because there were all of these people in Jerusalem just four, three, four days ago who were laying their coats down in the road, putting palm branches down, making a public spectacle of themselves, singing about the glory of Jesus as he walked into town, as he was carried into town by this donkey. They were thrilled that he had arrived because the entire population was putting their hope in him. Because of his powerful deeds and words, he was recognized by God and all the people as a prophet. But our chief priests and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. 
and they killed him. They crucified him. We had hoped, don't miss this part, we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. They're giving you an insight into where their hearts and minds had been. They said, we had our hopes up. We had built up all of this expectation about what Jesus was going to do. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. All of these things happened three days ago, but there's something else, verse 22. Some women from our group have left us stunned. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find his body. They came to us saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who told them that Jesus is alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found things just as the women said, but they didn't see him. Then Jesus replied. And Jesus speaks to these two disciples, these people who had seen so much, these people who had been witnesses to expressions of God's power and providence that most of us only dream about seeing these people who had had so much hope. Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then Luke fills us in on what happened next. Luke says, Then Jesus interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. Now, don't forget that at that moment in history when it talks about all the scriptures, we're not talking about any of our New Testament content that we have. We're talking about the ancient writings. We're talking about the stories of Abraham and Sarah. We're talking about the stories of Moses and the Exodus. We're talking about the stories of David and the kings and the division and the troubles and the problems. We're talking about the moments of exile. We're talking about the moments when the prophets were telling the people, even though there's no fruit on the vine, even though everything looks dismal, God is going to repair this. God's going to fix this. And Jesus is on that road to Emmaus. There they are. I don't know if they've still stopped or if they've started moving again, but he's telling them, hey, don't forget. Don't forget that this happened and then God showed up. Don't forget about how the people of Israel were experiencing this problem and God was there. Don't forget how God promised over and over and over and over and over again that this is the exact kind of thing that we should expect. He reminded them. He interpreted for them the things written about himself in all of the Old Testament scriptures, starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. And apparently at some point they got on the move again because verse 28 said, when they came to Emmaus, when they arrived at their destination, when they got to that little village that was seven miles outside of Jerusalem, 
Jesus acted as if he wasn't going to stop. He was going to keep on going down the road. But these two disciples urged him and said, stay with us. It's nearly evening. It's starting to get dark. The day is almost over. And so Jesus went in to stay with them. Now don't forget, at this point they don't have any idea who this is. They're just showing hospitality. They're showing hospitality to a stranger who's been kind to them on the road. And it says that after he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it. And this is an important formula. This is something that's memorable. This is something they've seen before. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And it says in verse 31 that in that moment, after what seemed like hours together, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. At that moment when he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, their eyes were open and they recognized him for who he really was. But just as quickly as they recognized him, he disappeared from their sight and they said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us on the road? Weren't you feeling something? Weren't you experiencing a kind of inner peace? Weren't you experiencing a warmth, a comfort, or a sensation that you couldn't explain? Because I was feeling it. While we were out there on the road, I was sensing that there was something bigger going on. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? And remember, they've just had supper, right? It's late in the evening, it's dark outside, and verse 33 says they got up right then and there and went seven miles back to Jerusalem. They got up right then and there and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11, the remaining of the core of the disciple group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and that bunch they found the eleven and their companions all gathered together and they were saying to each other, these eleven and their companions were saying to each other, the Lord really has risen. He showed up. He appeared to Simon Peter. And then these two from Emmaus, these two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. This story, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, this is one of the most cherished stories in all the history of the church. And part of the reason that this story is so special is because of the timing, because it happened on the Easter Sunday. It's part of the experience that's described for us about the initial revelations of Jesus after the resurrection. I mean, this is a special story because of this is part of the evidence, part of the proof, part of the experience that the followers of Jesus had when Jesus initially showed back up after having been dead. 
So part of the excitement about this story, part of the inspiration of this story is because we're watching as the disciples come to grips with news that seemed way too good to be true, that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. That's part of the reason this story is so special. But I think the primary reason that this story is so revered is because this story is so relatable. I can see myself in this story, not in the particulars. In the particulars of this story, the two disciples on the road to, road to Emmaus, they were disappointed because they had hoped that Jesus was going to be something bigger than they could see. They had hoped that Jesus was going to be the one who would liberate national Israel from Roman occupation, and that didn't happen. In the particulars of this story, these two disciples had put their faith in a plan that they thought they understood, that Jesus was going to defeat their pagan occupiers and restore Israel to independence and prominence again. And the details, the particulars of this story, are specific to their moment in time, but the sorrow that they were feeling, the disappointment in God's action or inaction that they were feeling, the sorrow they were feeling, that's universal. Because every believer, everyone who's ever tried to connect with God, everyone who's ever put their hope in God, has experienced disappointment at times when God didn't do what they hoped God would do. Every believer knows this feeling. Every believer has experienced the disappointment of God not intervening the way that we imagined God intervening in our story. Every believer has felt disoriented and bewildered when our vision of God's will didn't come to fruition, didn't become reality. We can relate to this story because there's these two disciples who are walking the road to Emmaus and they're traveling with broken hearts. You know that feeling, don't you? You know that feeling. And what it's like to travel with a broken heart because you're convinced that all of your hope and all of your expectation might have been for nothing. The disappointment starts to set in. The discouragement starts to set in. The doubt starts to set in and you start wondering, have I been wasting my time? Did I bet on the wrong horse? Did I pick the wrong lane? Am I crazy for believing this could be true? Here's these two disciples and their faith is reeling because they don't know what to believe anymore. They don't know what to think. They don't know what's going to happen next. The latest developments, developments in their unfolding story had left them wondering, what's even real? Has this all just been wishful thinking? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can acknowledge that sometimes faith feels that way. Sometimes faith feels that way. Is this real? I'm in a dwindling minority of people who think this is real. Am I crazy? Because here we are as believers. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, I, I, hope, I hope you'll hear the honesty as we talk through this. Listen in. Read, read our mail here. Because here we are as believers, and we sing songs about the mighty and saving and healing power of God 
and we remind ourselves in classes and small groups and conversations and from the stage we remind each other that God can still perform miracles and we conclude from our study of the scriptures that God's kingdom is making headway in the world and that God's big redemptive plan is being carried out but then we watch the news then we watch the news and and it seems like it's all violence and division Everything's on the verge of collapse and catastrophe, natural disasters, war. The powerful are exploiting the weak. And then we look at our own situation, our own story, and our own circumstances and surroundings, and we watch as our own families and our communities seem to be struggling, maybe as bad or worse than ever. Too many situations that would just seem to be getting worse, not getting better. We look at the circumstances all around us and the current events and the challenges that we face as a society, and maybe it's not surprising that droves of people are walking away from faith. That droves of people are calling themselves religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. No spiritual affiliation at all. We can relate to those disciples on the road to Emmaus who had tried hard to believe. They had invested themselves. They'd poured their life into this moment, and they'd shown up. And then their faith had been rocked by that climactic moment when it seemed like God's side was the losing side. But as we reflect on this story... As we listen, and maybe you're hearing this Emmaus story for the first time, as we reflect on this story of the disciples on the Emmaus road, there's one thing I want you to notice here. I want you to notice that these two disciples were so paralyzed by the, the visible events that were happening around them, they didn't even notice. They couldn't even recognize when God showed up in their midst. They were so paralyzed by their preoccupation and their limited understanding of the events that were happening around them that they were oblivious when Jesus himself showed up. And sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes our short-sightedness keeps us from seeing the movement of God that's been going on for millennia. Sometimes our short-sightedness and our limited understanding keeps us from being able to grasp that God is active and present and at work and powerful and providing. And we just missed it. On these road to Emmaus, these are people of faith. These are disciples of Jesus. That's what Luke calls them. Disciples of Jesus, but they lost their focus on the bigger picture because they were distracted by what they could see and what they needed. What they needed in that moment and what Jesus was there to provide for them was a recentering, a refocusing. As they were walking down the road, Jesus challenged them to snap out of it, to snap out of their tunnel vision. He reminded them, I've been telling you about this for the entirety of my ministry. I've been telling you this whole time. 
that the Son of Man would be offered up as a sacrifice for many, but that the grave wouldn't be able to hold him. And then he helped them to understand how the momentum of history, the movement of history, the entire time had been leading up to this very moment. Jesus helped them start piecing the puzzle pieces together from their own story, the story of their own nation and their own people and their own background and their own experience. He reminded them about all of those Old Testament stories of their ancient faith, their ancestors' faith, and he pointed out how all of that was culminating in what they had just witnessed in Jerusalem. Like that Footprints poem, these two disciples were looking back at the last three days and thinking to themselves, why are we walking by ourselves? Why are we suddenly alone? And in reality, their limited understanding was blinding them to the presence of the living, resurrected Christ. The reality was, the truth of the matter was, the real situation was that over the past three days and for centuries before that, God had been carrying them. God had been carrying out his plan. God had not been blindsided. God had not been defeated. God had not been surprised. In fact, God had been confident. God had been steadfast. And God had never left. There's times in life when God's presence, power, and peace seem obvious. There's times in life, those profound moments of intervention, those profound moments of inspiration, there's times in life when God's work seems obvious. But when it's harder to discern, when it's harder to see, when it's more difficult to notice what God's up to around us, I think we've got to remind each other to lean more heavily into our relationship with God. We've got to remind each other of what we already know. We've got to remind each other of what we've already experienced. We have to remind each other of what we've already been taught. Because when we remind each other of the faithfulness of God in the past, and when, when, when we remind each other of the promises of God for our future, it helps us to, to discern God's presence and plan in the present. How many times have you watched the movies about the journeys to the moon? I'm thinking of Apollo 13. In the moments when the capsule goes onto the, what do they call it, the dark side of the moon. And there's no radio communication. And there's no light. And the astronauts are just waiting, wondering, but it's their confidence. 
It's their confidence in the physics that they understand. It's their confidence in the quality of their craft. It's their confidence in the care and concern of the people at Mission Control who are supporting them. It's their confidence in the entire team and the entire plan that keeps them from panicking on the dark side of the moon because they know there's a day coming when their connection back home is going to be obvious again. And the more familiar you are with God in the obvious times, the more you'll be able to remember and reflect and notice God when things seem unclear. The more familiar you are with God's presence, power, peace, and plan in the obvious times, the more prepared you'll be for the moments when it feels like you're in the dark. And the people of God, we have a responsibility to prepare each other for this. We have a responsibility to support one another in this endeavor. We have a responsibility to pray for one another. The Apostle Paul, who was constantly introducing people to Jesus for the first time and then moving on to introduce new people, but, but at the same time hoping that his previous connections would stay the course. He prayed for his friends and their faith. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, Since the day we heard about you, speaking to the church in Colossae, he says, Since the day we heard about you, we haven't stopped praying for you. And we haven't stopped praying and asking for you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We're going to spend this summer together in a series that we're calling Vivid. And what we're going to talk about is how it's fixing our eyes on Jesus despite the distractions. It's remembering to focus on Jesus despite the interruptions and the fears and worries and concerns. It's fixing our eyes on Jesus that allows us to become familiar with the love of God. We're going to talk about some practices we're going to talk about some strategies. We're going to talk about some opportunities that are there for us to familiarize ourselves with the God who loves us so that on the dark days, on the dark days, we'll be so confident. We'll be so confident God's got this that we're going to see it clearly. I hope you'll be a part of it.